The day when you and I forget that Jesus died for our sins is the day we're, we're taking a, a, a dive. We're going to become worldly. We're going to stray away from God when we forget the great sacrifice. When Jesus was crucified, they took him to this little kind of a hill that was called Calvary. Golgotha is also the other name for it. The idea is that it kind of looked like a bit of a skull. When you get back and you look at it, it looked like a bit of a human skull there. And that's where Jesus was crucified. Crucifixion was the the worst possible way to die. Um, the condemned would linger on the cross for often for days. It wasn't unusual to have them live for four and five days as they experienced a slow and morbid and agonizing death. The Romans um, learned crucifixion off the Greeks, but it, the Romans took it to the next level. And they had perfected the form of crucifixion. And it was so bad, it was so horrible, that Roman law prevented a Roman citizen from being crucified. They'd have their heads chopped off, maybe, a Roman citizen who was worthy of death. They chopped the Apostle Paul's head off. He was a Roman citizen. Jesus was not a Roman citizen. And he was crucified. I believe it was the uh, orator Cicero who said something to the effect of let the, uh, the word or the thought of the cross be banished from our, our minds. Back then, if someone tried to assassinate you know, the emperor, it didn't matter if they were a Roman citizen or not, they'd be crucified. But the Romans perfected crucifixion and Sometimes after a battle, they would demonstrate their disdain for the enemy by taking the survivors and crucifying them. And they would line the roads, the Roman roads, with cross upon cross and victim upon victim hanging there. And many of them moaning and some of them half out of their minds and uh, in agony and throbbing pain that just wouldn't end. They would swoon and wake up again and they were still on, alive on the cross. Passers, buyers would hurl insults along with stones or rotten tomatoes or spit. And uh, most often they would be crucified naked. It was the worst possible way to die. And that was how they wanted to put our Lord to death. Well, after Jesus died and rose again, the cross took on new meaning. And these believers in Jesus started to speak lovingly of the cross. This was so foreign to the minds of people back then. Uh, today, when a prisoner is put to death, sometimes they'll have a firing squad 
that's a very quick death. Sometimes they chop the head off. Sometimes it's by lethal injection and they just sort of go to sleep. Sometimes the hangman's noose and they'll flutter at the end of a noose for a a short few moments and they're dead. The electric chair is a grisly kind of way to die as they would shoot some 5,000 or more volts through the condemned and they would do it several times. And there, of course, be the, uh, the smell of burning flesh, but horrible way to die. And I've, I've often thought, if Jesus were alive today and offered Himself and they rejected Him and they wanted to kill Him and they put Him on the electric chair, then maybe we Christians, we believers, wouldn't be singing songs about the old rugged cross. We'd be singing songs about the old electric chair. And it's a a strange thought, isn't it? Of course, if anyone in today's society started singing songs about the old electric chair, how near and dear to my heart, we'd look at them and we'd, we'd say, whoa, there's something wrong with your head. You're not all there. No one talks like that. Imagine the Christian ladies walking around with little earrings with little electric chairs on them. And, of course, we'd say, whoa, boy, there's something weird about those people. But if our Lord had have been lynched at the end of a noose, we'd be singing, you know, that old hangman's noose but He was crucified on a cross. And we sing that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, holds a wondrous attraction for me. Aren't we strange? We Christians. We blood-bought, born again, forgiven men and women, believers in Jesus Christ. And by the way, looking for His soon return too, I might add. Tonight, we want to look at the, the table of the Lord and how it pictures the Lord's death till He come. We don't know. This might be our last communion service before our Savior comes. Imagine if He came at midnight. Would you be ready? Let's pray, and then uh, we're going to open our Bibles. Our Heavenly Father, help us tonight to, to learn a little more about the reality of the cross and the communion service and the uh, wondrous attraction, really, since Jesus got involved. And so, bless us tonight to grow in faith and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, folks, let's open our Bible to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. You know, on Wednesday nights, and by the way, if you can't make it to the service, um, if you're stuck at home, then watch online. But if you can possibly come to the service, do. We're studying about spiritual gifts. And it's important that every believer learn how to discern what God has given them in the way of spiritual gifts. 
And chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14 deal with the spiritual gifts. Chapter 11 deals with the communion service. The church at Corinth was a real mixed-up church. It was a real bag of tricks because it was a kind of a composition of some saved, real good godly people and then some saved uh, backslidden people and then some unsaved people were in there as well. And the bottom line is that they all got kind of jumbled up and everything that could be messed up got messed up. And the communion service was one of those things that got messed up. And so that's why the Lord moved on the heart of the Apostle Paul to write the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is our greatest single source. There's other sources in the Bible we have on the communion service, but that is the go-to chapter for our learning, our knowledge on the communion service. The um, communion service is um, still being misunderstood even today as it has as it was 2,000 years ago and down through the years. And if we would be careful students of the Bible, we could come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, these, um, these two things, baptism and the Lord's table, are known as ordinances. We don't call them sacraments. The Catholic Church calls them sacraments. The High Anglican Church calls them sacraments. The idea of the sacrament is to help make you sacred. And that's why the Catholics teach that without the table, they call it the Mass, without that you have no hope of being able to get into heaven. Well, in fact, all Catholics know that they can't directly go to heaven. They've got to go somewhere else first. Where is that? Purgatory, right. Ooh, who wants to go to purgatory? And the idea is that's like a holding pattern. And maybe to, to, uh, to purge you, to make you uh, right to go to heaven. And then it's up to all of the good Catholics on earth to help you and pray for you and give money to the church and uh, things like that and light candles, say a few Hail Marys, over a period of time. Maybe it'll be decades, maybe it'll be a couple hundred years, you never know, to help get these, these saints out of purgatory and into heaven. Well, folks, that is not taught in the Bible anywhere. And if we want to know the truth, and the truth will make us free, we need to study the Bible. God didn't play games with us in the Bible. He said, this is this, and that is that, and if we would just believe what God says, we'd have very few problems. And so these are not called sacraments. These are called ordinances. An ordinance, basically an ordinance means an order that's been sent down to us from the boss. That's what an ordinance is. It has that idea of ordain, to put in proper order, or perhaps we could say to appoint. But there's two of them. There's the Lord's table and there's baptism. Um, marriage is not an ordinance nor a sacrament. But um, the Lord's table and baptism are. So, um, if you look at chapter 11 and verse number 2, the Apostle writes, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances. And there's an S on the end, so it's more than one. 
as I delivered them to you. Well, as we study the life of the Apostle Paul, his missionary journeys, the epistles he wrote, the churches he established, what are these ordinances, plural? We find there's two of them. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the only two that we find evidence of in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul delivered to the churches. He didn't teach them foot washing. Some people believe that foot washing is an ordinance and they go right back to the night on which Jesus was betrayed. And they say, look, see? And then Jesus even said, as I have done, you do. Well, if it were an ordinance, Paul would have taught it to the churches and there'd be evidence of it. But there's none. There's none. Foot washing was not an ordinance, it was a custom that was done. Now this morning we looked at that. In the morning message, we talked about that woman in Luke chapter 7 who came into Simon the Pharisee's house and with her tears she washed Jesus' feet. And with the hairs of her head she wiped them. But Simon the Pharisee, the master of the house, did none of these things that was customary if you read the chapter carefully, you'll, you'll see that it was a custom in that Galilee area, well, I think throughout the Holy Land, that when a guest came into your home, you showed them extra special care and love. And one of the things they did back then in that hot, dusty climate was to wash the feet of guests. What Jesus was teaching on the night in which he was betrayed what he was teaching was not an ordinance. What he was teaching was humility. To serve one another. So if foot washing were an ordinance, there'd be other evidence of it in the Bible. Certainly in the writings of the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 of the New Testament books. But there's none. You find the evidence of two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so here in verse 2, we find the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And I want you to notice something, again, being good students of the Bible. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, now I praise you, brethren. He's talking to the, to the believers there at the church. Unbelievers are not part of God's family. They're not part of the brethren. Well, I, I use that in a generic sense. I know that there's a, a, a Christian division of Christianity that calls itself the brethren. I know that. You know that. But you understand what I'm saying. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we got that way through salvation through Jesus Christ. But our sin's forgiven. And so he's talking to the believers at the church at Corinth. And he says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. And keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you, plural, to your church. When I started the church, Paul started this church. The Lord's table was given to the local church. That's an important uh, point of doctrine. There is no example of the Lord's table being performed outside of the local church. We don't have that in Scripture. I know today we have groups that do it. We have different, what we refer to as parachurch groups. That means churches that, uh, groups that are outside of the local church. They like to come alongside of a local church. 
one of them. Perhaps Campus Crusade for Christ might be one of them. Uh, the, the Christian Children's uh, uh, Mission Fund there, another parachurch organization. And sometimes these parachurch organizations will try and have communion. Some of these televangelists do that. And they say, folks, send in your tithes to this evangelist and we'll send you a little cup of juice and a little wafer of bread and on a certain day we're all going to have communion all over the world and it'll be glorious. No, it won't be. Because it was never given to the TV evangelist to spread around the world. It was given to the local church. There are some things that belong to a family. A family. Like mom and dad and the kids. A family. They live under one roof. They eat at one table. They sit down together uh, as a family. That's a family. And there are certain things that belong to families that don't belong to the whole world at large. The local church is like a family. There's lots of local churches all over the world, no question. There's lots of families all over the world too. This is a local church. Communion and baptism have been given to local churches. Not to a, a bunch of Christians off at Tim Horton or Starbucks and three or four of them around a table and one of them says, hey, let's have a communion service while we're here. Don't do it. Don't do it. I, I've used the example of, of a couple of children, maybe a couple of six-year-old children, a little boy, a little girl. And the little girl says, hey, I have an idea. Let's play house. He says, oh, okay. And then she says, we'll, we'll be married. I can be the wife and you can be the husband. And the little boy says, oh, okay. And then she says, we'll kiss and then we'll be married. And he says, I don't know if I want to play this. But anyhow, they end up kissing. Well, maybe they ought not to do that. But now they walk around and they tell everyone, we're married, we're married, we're married. We kiss, we're husband and wife. That's my husband and I'm his wife. We're married. Now we would look at those two six-year-olds and we'd say, aw, how sweet, how cute. Or maybe we wouldn't do that. But we all know they're not married, Right? We all realize that. I hope we realize that. Those two six-year-olds are not married. Well, there's a lot of people who think that they can go off out in the woods, just a few of them, and practice baptism and communion. Folks, it was never, ever given outside of the local church. This is very important. And we realize that communion and baptism can only happen in the context of a local church. Nowhere else. And where do you get that? We get that by examining the Bible. Now they say, um, when you want to really study something out, that you follow the five W's. The five W's. And what are they? Who? What? When? Where? And why? The five W's. So they figure if you can answer those five W's, you'll, you'll have a fair, fair handle on whatever subject it is you're studying. And so I think for the next few minutes, we ought to look at the five W's. And so our first W is going to be who. Who should partake 
of communion. Chapter 11, look at verse 27 and 28. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And what Paul is writing here is that unsaved people have no part in the communion service. To eat and to drink unworthily means in an unworthy state. They're not saved. Things that are not worthy, that have no worth or value to you, are junk. You buy something, it comes in a wrapper. You take the wrapper off, you've got the the thing you bought. But what are you going to do with the wrapper? Well, we put it in a recycle, don't we? We throw it out. We get rid of it. Because to us, it's junk. Now, maybe someone out there is a pack rat and keeps every little scrap, every little ribbon, every little tissue, and they've got a house packed from floor to ceiling, wall to wall, with boxes and everything imaginable. There are people like that. They're called hoarders. And they never throw anything out. Never. Well, thankfully, those are few and far between, those folks. The rest of us recognize that there's valuable things and there is worthless things. And things that have no value are not worth anything. They're unworthy. And so he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, that means an unsaved person. And then in verse 28, Paul says, let a man examine himself. Over in the next epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. So you have to examine your heart, your faith, and determine, am I saved? Am I born again? Am I part of God's family? And if the answer is no, you should not partake. If the answer is, well, I'm not sure, you should not partake. If the answer is, yes, I know I'm saved, and here is how I know I'm saved, the biblical reasons and evidences of salvation. They're in my life. I got them. I know I'm saved, and here's why. Then you should partake. So who should partake? Saved people, but not just saved people, because sometimes saved people are living in disobedience to God, right or wrong. Right. That happens. Saved people can backslide. So it needs to be saved people who are living their life for the Lord. Well, how do we do that? Well, after we're saved, the first thing that we're supposed to obey is to be baptized. So, someone says, well, wait a minute. I got that when I was a baby. (laughs) No, you didn't. You think you were baptized. Baptism is only for believers. If as a baby, you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ to save you and take you to heaven, then you might have a case. But most babies haven't a clue. They can't differentiate between their left hand and their right hand. So, infant baptism means nothing. It's an invention outside of the Bible. The Bible only speaks of believer's baptism. So a believer needs to be baptized, needs to be affiliated with a local Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. We normally call that church membership. Also, there needs to be confession of sin. If a believer is living in sin, he or she should not partake of the Lord's table. And so, who should partake? Saved people who are obeying God. 
That's the who. Now comes the where. Where do we practice communion? Well, let's look here at verse 17 and 18. It says, Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together. See that? Here's all of the church coming together. He, he says, not for the better, but for the worse. In their particular case, they had messed up the communion service, and it, they would leave worse, in worse condition than when they came. And also look at, please, at verse 20. When ye come together, therefore, into one place. And then he says, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's actually shaming them because they, they were saying they were eating the Lord's Supper. And he's telling them, what you're doing is not really the Lord's Supper. That's what he means. But the first part, when ye come together in one place. That's the church all coming together. Look at verse 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And so, where are we to have the communion service? It's wherever the church comes together. Now, Grace Baptist Church has this convenient place here in which we come together. If we didn't have this building, we'd have some other place. Maybe we'd have to go and meet in the park. If something happened, we, we were without a building, we'd have to go in the parking lot or in the, you know, the, the, the park with all of the grass and trees, and we would meet there. But wherever the church comes together, it doesn't have to be in a nice building with a steeple on top, but wherever the church meets together, the whole church comes together. Communion is not for individuals. Communion is not for little pieces of the church. Communion is for when the church comes together because it, it's important for the unity. Unity of the whole church is a key factor. All right, we've looked at the who, we've looked at the where, the when. When should we have communion? Look at verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. It doesn't tell us to have communion every day. It doesn't tell us to have communion every week. It doesn't tell us to have communion every month. It doesn't tell us to have communion every year. But you've got to do something. So what do you do? The Lord has left it up to the church. Some local churches have communion once or twice a year. That's their decision. Some local churches have communion once a week. That's their decision. Some churches have communion once a month. That's their decision. We, as a local church, try to have communion once a month. Occasionally, something comes up we're not able to, but generally, we try to have communion once a month. There is no specified time as to when we're to do it. Well, that's the who, the where, the when. Now, what about the why? The why, 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 why do we have communion? Well, I mentioned earlier that it shows unity, and that's very important. But also, it's a time for self-examination. Before we partake, we always pause, and we ask the Lord, is there anything in my life that ought not to be there? Holy Spirit of God, search me. 
and know me? Is there any sin that I haven't confessed? And it's a wonderful opportunity to get our hearts right with the Lord. We ought to be doing that every day, don't you think? But here we do it at the communion service. It's very important that we do that because if we are saved and we're harboring sins and we partake of the table of the Lord, God promises us here that He will chasten us. You know, it's far better for you and I for us to chasten ourselves than to let God do it. It's far better for you and I to judge the sin within us than for God to have to do it. Because if God does it, it might be public. And then others are going to find out about that sin. It's far better for us to confess our sins privately to the Lord. Does that make sense? You see, that's what it is taught here. In verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. That means God won't have to do it. If you would go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I'm so sorry, but I did this and I didn't do that, and I said this and I shouldn't have, and you know, you, you be the judge. You condemn sin in your own heart. You ask the Lord for forgiveness. You do that privately. You don't err your sins before others. You confess it before God, and God promises to forgive us our sins. But if we do not confess our sins before God, if we don't judge it within ourselves, you see, then God will have to do it. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. And here's why, that we should not be condemned with the world. The world is under condemnation because of their sin and wickedness. And what God does lovingly, if we won't do the job, God will have to do it. We might not like how God has to do it. So it's better if we judge the sin in ourselves. Each one of us ought to be judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to personal sin. But also, why we do this is in verse 26. For as oft as ye, often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, look at the next words, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. This is a picture of Christ's death. Now we know that after he died, three days after he died, he rose again. We know that. That's what the Easter celebration is all about. Some people don't like the word Easter. That's fine. You know, I can take it or leave it. But I'm thankful for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. You know, Jesus died and rose again. Hallelujah. The whole basis of the Christian faith, the hope of sins forgiven and a home in heaven is resting upon Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And by the way, that is the essence of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says he delivered this gospel to them. That is the gospel. Gospel meaning good news. And in this particular case, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel we're talking about. So here, the why is we do show the Lord's death till He come. Every time we do this, we are reminding ourselves that Jesus died for us. The day when you and I forget that Jesus died for our sins is the day we're, we're taking a, 
a dive. We're going to become worldly. We're going to stray away from God when we forget the great sacrifice. That's why Jesus never gave up the prince in his hands and in his feet and that mark in his side where they put the, the spear. For all eternity, he's going to keep those as constant reminders of what he did for us. That's important. We never, ever, ever forget. We are sinners saved by grace. We have a Savior. Very important. All right, that's the who, the where, the when, the why. And now the what. The what. Well, if you look at verse 24, when he had given thanks, I'm sorry, the end of verse 23, uh, he took bread here, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. In verse 25, after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the new testament. That means the new agreement, the new will, if you, if, if you will. The new testament in my blood. We have two elements. We have bread and we have juice. It's never called wine. In the Bible, wine can be fermented and wine can be unfermented. You have those two. And context will tell you if it's fermented or not. Noah, after he landed high and dry and he got out on ground, he worshipped God, says later Noah got drunk. And the context indicates that he was inebriated. He was laying nude in his tent and one of his, his um, uh, kids there came in and saw him and so on and made a bit of a mockery. And Afterwards, <clears throat> when he sobered up, he found out what happened. So, that, that wine there was alcoholic. This was not alcoholic. It's a picture of his blood. Jesus had zero alcohol in his blood when he died on the cross. Remember they offered him this special numbing drink, this vinegar mixed with gall. Do you remember that? They offered it to him at the beginning. And when he tasted what it was, he refused it. He didn't want any narcotics, any alcohol, anything in his system. His blood is pure. It's called the fruit of the vine. It's called the cup, but it's never called wine. So as no one will ever make a mistake. Some churches, they offer 18% proof. That's about as much alcohol, I think, as you can get in wine. After that, you've got to distill it into spirits. And that's where you get your hard whiskey and liquor and stuff like that is through the distillation process. But in order to get that wine alcoholic, they have to put in the yeast and ferment it. This, this grape juice had no fermentation in it whatsoever. And the bread was unleavened bread. It had no yeast in it. It had no fermentation in it. It was plain flat bread and plain grape juice. That's the what. A perfect picture of the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. Well, I think we've been to school enough tonight, don't you? Yes? I think we need to prepare our hearts for this precious moment doesn't take long to distribute the elements and before you know it, it's all over.
But it's good that we prepare ourselves for this. And so, it's a good idea for us to examine our hearts. We're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word. Thank you.